Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. I've got a great guest for you today. His name is Joey Skladani. He's the editor-at-large for Chowhound. He just put out a book. We've got lots of great topics to get to. But before we jump into him, I just want to give you a sincere thank you and a heartfelt, you know, podcasting hug. By the way, you may hear some weird noises right now. I'm not sure if they're coming through on the mic, but I'm still at my parents' house in Michigan and there's these bugs called cicadas and they make this really obnoxious sound and they decided to just go for it as I started recording. So if you hear those, we're just going to roll with the punches and, and talk through them. But I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you to you because I'm not sure if you saw, but over the weekend, I found out that Unleash Your Inner Creative is nominated for a People's Choice Podcast Award. And it is so exciting. It's such an honor. There, you know, this show has had so many beautiful successes. It's been on the charts a bunch of times. It was on New and Noteworthy 37 times. And really the most important thing, honest to God, is when you reach out and tell me that it's made a difference in your life, some of you have changed your career paths because of the show. Some of you have created a community for yourself because of the show. Some of you have just been inspired to start a side hustle. I mean, there's so many different things. It's certainly helped me with my music career. Couldn't have done it without this show and this community. So that's the most important thing. But there have definitely been times when it's like I've been doing it all alone and I felt, what am I doing this for? You know, I don't have a teammate. I feel the burden of carrying this thing and holding it because I do think of it as such a sacred piece of my life. And I'm I'm not sure, like, is it even reaching anyone? And so sometimes just having those little validations makes such a big difference. And I never would have had the opportunity to be recognized in this way if it wasn't for you supporting the show, leaving ratings and reviews, telling friends about it, posting about it. So just a sincere thank you to you and to the podcast awards. It's very, very exciting. I'm humbled to be nominated and to be nominated with so many amazing shows. And it's just a really great feather in the Unleash Your Inner Creative Communities cap. So this is not just my nomination. It's your nomination too. And Thank you for your support and her being my friend in my head. I love you. All right, now to Joey. My guest today is Joey Skladani. He is a writer, editor, TV and radio personality, former entertainment publicist, and editor-at-large for Chowhound. He's best known for his new book, very fun book, Basic Bitchin', and for being featured on outlets such as Food & Wine, Sirius XM, People, In Style, Travel & Leisure, and BuzzFeed. I first became a fan of Joey's work way back when I used to listen to Taylor Strecker, who's actually one of my broadcasting inspirations on Sirius XM. And when he did her show, I was just taken by his fun energy and presence. He would do these short segments, and it's really not easy to make that kind of a presence come through on radio when you only have a few minutes, and he always stood out to me. I wanted to have Joey on the show because he is an intelligent, hardworking, and nonstop creative that can help you learn to manage a work-life balance. He's also a great example of what rolling with the creative punches looks like during COVID. Joey's book, Basic Bitchin', had a delayed release, and he's very open about how that experience put him in check. He's also very funny. It's so much fun talking with him, and I'm excited to share a genuinely fun conversation with you. From our chat, you'll also learn how to use PR to your advantage and what that world is really like, actionable tips to stay productive and mentally healthy during quarantine, how to let go of what we can't control and redefine our relationship with work, why organization is key to creativity, how to expand your vision for your life and career, tips on how to have fun with your passion, and how to multitask and not burn yourself out, and really so much more. Okay, now here he is, Joey Skladani. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, back to like the days of Sirius XM, Taylor Strecker, radio. And um, I feel like I'm talking to my male counterpart in a lot of ways because you and I have been both going through a lot of the same revelations about work-life balance. So I want to get deep into some big topics with you because we're working through a lot of the same things. And basically, I need advice and I, I think it will be really helpful to talk through it together. But looking back on it, when you trace the lines of your life and you look back to little Joey, what was the first time you realized you were creative? 
Oh my gosh. I, I've always been a creative kid. <laughs> I was the type of kid who would staple together sheets of paper and write my own mini books ever since I was like, gosh, five or six. And I, I learned how to write and read really, really young. Before that, I would say I was just very imaginative. My mom, you know, used to leave me in a room for hours with my matchbox cards and I would color code them. I would line them up by favoritism. And I feel like those little OCD type traits actually lend themselves to uh, or lending themselves to my creativity. It was obviously taking full advantage of how uh, my mind operated in kind of an artistic and very visual way. Uh, but yeah, and I would also create these like faux scenarios as even a little kid where I would, after lining up the matchbox cars, run through them and pretend I was a tornado. So <laughs> I'm going to try that tonight. No. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's a quarantine activity. <laughs> yeah. And I was always just very imaginative. I would create these worlds. I would create these personalities for them. I mean, even my drag name stems from a character I created in middle school because I was very dramatic. I was very into theater. And Krista Virtue was the name that I gave to this, like, bitchy but confident, popular girl <laughs> who I'm sure was modeled off of someone who made fun of me. But I just, ever since, childhood my mind has been racing 10,000 miles a minute and it's all kind of in just this creative realm of creating characters scenarios stories and it's hard to turn off yeah I mean I don't think you can ever turn it off well you'd be surprised <laughs> you throw yourself into corporate America and sometimes they, well yeah you know, I want to talk about that because okay you started your career as a publicist, is that correct? I started actually in TV publicity. So my first internship was in PR for Fox in LA. Okay, okay I want to get into this. So you went to college. Your college resume reads like a normal life resume that someone would do over the span of like 10 years. Um, <laughs> so clearly you worked yourself to the bone in college. And so what was your goal at that point? Like, were you trying to go down that more corporate path or did you want to go towards something creative? When I was in high school, I was dead set on doing theater. So my mind was always there creatively. I also was obsessed with writing, creative writing specifically. But in my mind, I also was like, okay, this is not necessarily going to be the most financially stable option. And that always mm. freaked me out. So I was always on the hunt to figure out ways to parlay my creativity into something that potentially was more corporate. So in college, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to work for big organizations like Fox, CNN, Starcom, MTV. I literally did eight internships. I was insane. But in my mind, it was like, I'm doing a creative job within a corporate organization. And hopefully they'll give me that type of flexibility. Um, obviously, some opportunities were better than others when it came to that. And you can only do so much within the limitations of an internship. But I really flourished in these writing heavy, uh, you know, event based, anything that allowed me to use the creative side of my brain a little bit more than the analytical side. And then just naturally after college, I kind of gravitated towards that, you know, I, by being in television because television is chock full of creative minds, especially in production. You know, you're putting on a show, you're thinking of creative ways to get new audiences, you're thinking of creative ways to promote it. So yeah, it was about kind of finding that creative spot in an Uber corporate environment. I sometimes wonder like, why do we feel like we need to like squash ourselves through this like small hole when we could be so expansive, just be out into the world? But I do think that there's something to like finding the creative aspects of something that is typically analytical, like you said, or corporate. Why do you think though a lot of corporations or bigger businesses want to squash that when they see that in people? Because to me, it's actually an asset for them because you're going to bring them, first of all, ideas that they never would have thought of. Second of all, opportunities that they never would have gotten and publicity that they never would have gotten. But why do you think a lot of businesses want to squash that creative energy? 
For sure. I think it's changed in the past 10 years for the better. I think companies are now treating their employees more like individuals with opinions and things to say. I know that's not, you know, what's happening across the board, but at the end of the day, companies are all about productivity and making the most money in the smallest amount of time, which means things like brainstorming and, you know, just creative activities are kind of seen as less important. In actuality, the longer you take to brainstorm an idea and come up with something amazing, it's most likely going to yield the best long-term results. At least that's what I found. I feel like when everything's just so quick and it's all about meeting deadlines or, you know, meeting financial goals, you lose a lot of the, I would say, uh, long-term planning aspects. Everything's kind of just about the immediate, uh, you know, satisfaction of, of making money or finishing quick projects. And in equally, we need to be focused on long-term goals. And I think that's where creative people really do come into play because they are experts at coming up with an idea and seeing it through from start to end. I think companies have done a better job of putting more of an emphasis on creative ideas. That being said, they do have certain numbers that they need to hit and certain goals. And if that does mean sacrificing creativity, unfortunately, that's one of the first things to go because they'd rather just get those quick wins to right. make some moolah. Right. I think it's like winning the battle, but losing the war, you know, because yes. like long term, that was going to be something that would be much more profitable to you because when you give someone loyalty and you like let, allow them to be themselves, they'll give you that all that back and more if you hired the right person. It is changing. It's changing slower in some areas than others, but it is hopeful that it's changing. Yeah. And I do think too, on the flip side, there's a reluctancy to be creative in the workplace because companies are making you sign contracts, employee contracts that basically allow them to have ownership of your ideas and your creative property. And there's that fine line between is this something that is benefiting me personally, or is it something that I came up with for the brand itself? It's really hard as a creative uh, to juggle that. And it's led to a lot of legal issues down the road where you may be doing something for your personal brand, but the company you work for will argue otherwise and say, no, you did that to benefit us. We have ownership of it. So that's wow. where I found a lot of creative struggling. You know, even something like, I'm in the middle of launching a podcast. See, I'm sometimes I'm nervous that CBS, you know, will be like, Hey, this is a conflict of interest. You know, you're in media already, but I can argue, no, this podcast is a hobby. It has absolutely nothing to do with my line of work. It has nothing to do with food. And I'm allowed to do that. Anyone is allowed to start a podcast. So there's that gray area that I feel like is stifling some creative types in the workplace because they don't want to always reveal their best ideas in fear of a company profiting off of it. Right. Yeah, it, it is so hard. You have to constantly be thinking from every angle. But yeah, yeah. like you said, like finding those gray areas, that's where you want to go and, and live in, swim in them. Okay, curious from your time in publicity, what did you learn from that that you still use in your career today? And like, what should creatives know about the world of PR to help get them eyes and ears on their work? Sure. I would say when it comes to PR specifically, it's about being knowledgeable in every single aspect of PR. Most people think it's glamorous, it's events, it's walking talent on red carpet, it's promoting, you know, these amazing products. Ultimately, that's obviously a part of it, but it's about relationship building with media. It's about crisis communications because things are going to come up unexpectedly, whether it's the voice behind the company or, you know, uh, the product itself having some type of error. You need to always be quick on your feet. And then I would say, last but not least, it's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You have got to have amazing, I hate to say this term because it's such a cliche, but people skills. You have to really excel at knowing what other people are thinking at all times and how you can manipulate a conversation to be beneficial for your product or your talent. And it just, it requires a personality where you've got to be quick on your feet. And that's where I do think my creativity lends itself well, because my mind is constantly racing. I'm thinking of a million things at once. 
And I was able to kind of tap into scenarios that I've already thought up when, you know, there was a sense of urgency surrounding a talent uh, or a product. And it is bullshit, but you have to be smart about the bullshit because you're also dealing with other intelligent people who can smell bullshit (laughs) and it doesn't always work with them. So again, it's a lot of just being really good at honing in on those people skills. I hate people skills. I hate that term, but knowing being almost like 10 steps ahead of everyone you're interacting with so that you don't have a quote unquote disaster. <laughs> so flash forward to now you work at Chow Hound, you're the editor in large. What does that entail? Like, what does that mean? And yeah, tell me about Yeah, this. I actually went from managing editor to at large. Managing editor oversees the day-to-day operations for any media brand or at least a written one, a digital or print. You are the ones who, you're the one who is doing a lot of the top editing. You're coming up with the story ideas. You're assigning stories. You're recruiting freelancers, contributors. You basically run the day-to-day operations. You're working with your SEO teams, marketing, sales, uh, basically anything to get editorial out the door, clean, polished and potentially with some integration or sponsorship behind it. Editor at large is more of a creative role because I get to, at large means, you know, you dip your toes into a bunch of different beats and projects. You're not dedicated to one aspect of the brand. And an at large role, they're, you know, really relied upon to come up with these creative ideas that are going to take publications to the next level. So, for example, my book coming out, I got to focus on writing that. Yeah. And that's something that very much plays into the at-large role because it's a side project that is only going to enhance the brand because it's tied to Chowhound. But it's not a day-to-day editorial operation like me writing an article that is keeping the business moving and going forward. So same goes for if I'm doing like a YouTube series or if I say, you know what, this next month, I want to do a deep dive in an article about Wisconsin cheese. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to write about. I have that luxury in an at-large role to create these special projects that are just going to enhance the brand ultimately. That's so cool. When I read that, I pictured you sitting on a desk in a big corner <laughs> office with your feet up on it being like, I'm editor at large. Come Girl, to me, I baby. Wish. <laughs> I wish. Uh, every second of my life in an open office floor plan, whoever invented that deserves every one of life's misfortunes. Um, no, it's not a glamorous. I, honestly, um... I, I feel like those are going to go away after this, right? Because it's not social distancing. You're right. I hope they yeah. do go away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so I, I think over that they that. will. I think the workplace is forever changed. But um, yeah. you brought up your book. So I want to launch into the thing that really made me, I mean, I love you and I think you're amazing. I think you're a star in so many ways, but this point of connection really made me want to have you on the show. So I read this beautiful post that you wrote about how your book got delayed and I'm going to read it to you if that's okay. Yeah. Oh God. PTSD. (laughs) PTSD. But you know what? It's like, it's important because this is something that I think a lot of us are struggling with right now, especially those of us who get our self-worth from work. Yeah. Is redefining that in this time where so many of the things that we were going after don't exist or have changed dramatically. So this is the beautiful post you wrote. I've been dreading this day for a while now. It's the day basic bitchin' was supposed to come out. Keep perspective, everyone says, and I agree wholeheartedly. I'm extremely grateful for my health, mental excluded, and the health of my loved ones. The fact that I have a job. But perspective is hard, especially for someone who has dedicated his entire adult life to career choices. I've bolded this part. It has been the driving force behind every decision I've made and the sole reason why I came out late, struggled so hard financially, moved to NYC, only had one relationship, and passed up on more social opportunities than I can count. I had a vision of where I wanted to be and things were finally falling into place after making what seemed like a million sacrifices. And now this moment, for which I feel selfish to even complain about. I... Hope to come back from this stronger with a renewed sense of drive and purpose, but I've lost the fire and it scares me. Maybe it took a pandemic to show me that I've actually been doing this wrong all along and I should have been living in the present and surrendering this relentless need to control every single aspect of my life. 
I'd like to think I've been a good friend, family member, colleague, and person, but I guess I haven't been good to myself, at least in a way that will keep me sane and secure during times of uncertainty and turmoil. This changes today because, frankly, I don't really have any other choice. Continuing to send love during what has been a difficult time for everyone, here's hoping things will at least be a little bit normal come August 4th, which is when the book is now going to come out. So, okay, thank you, first of all, for that vulnerability because it really helped me reading that, Joey. Um, Yeah. I've been struggling with a lot of those same things, realizing that I put all my self-worth into my accomplishments. I want to like break this down. So like, let's talk about the revelation. How did you come to realize that you've been placing your worth in your career and that that's not really sustainable long-term? I started out as the kid in elementary school who would get only straight A's and not because my parents were necessarily pressuring me to do so. I just felt this need to constantly impress everyone around me to impress myself and live up to my abilities and what I know I'm capable of. But it takes a severe hit to your mental health. The good thing about my mental health is that I can channel anxiety and depression into productivity. So even when I went to college and I was struggling with, you know, obviously my sexuality, I wasn't out at the time and I was harboring all of these feelings instead of sinking into a depression and detaching myself from society and everyone around me, I do the opposite. I, I'm like, I, can I take on extra work to make sure I get an A instead of an A minus? Can I clean my room 7,000 more times than I already do? I'm really good at channeling my anxieties into things that are beneficial for me in the long run, but it quickly catches up with you and then you just get burnt out. And it did take this pandemic, which it's completely out of my control, out of all of our control, for me to realize, whoa, you've invested way too much time, energy, everything into something that you thought you had complete control over and you absolutely do not. So when I had to detach a little bit, it 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 really messed me up. Yeah, <laughs> so, fuck yeah. So <laughs> it's I, brutal. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's the first time that I was contemplating taking some sort of medication. I noticed I was drinking a lot more wine to kind of numb, you know, the pain. Mm-hmm. And it is a total control thing for me. And I can't lie and say I'm a hundred percent. You know, I have a hundred percent wipe my hands clean of feeling bad about everything going on. No, it's quite the opposite. I think I've just had to check my emotions from day to day. You know, some days are better than others. I will have a day where an opportunity will present itself to promote this book in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to pre-pandemic. And I get excited about it. But then I have days where I just, I wallow in self-pity and I'm like, oh my gosh, I spent over a year writing this thing and it was the one thing that was going to be career defining and change the trajectory of my life and I can't shake the depression I can't even tell you like what state I'm even in right now it's like literally a day-by-day situation for me well yeah you're still in the thick of it I mean you're that's the thing I love it when people are like I healed from this I'm like oh good for you because most people don't like we we're gonna be stuck with our baggage for the rest of our life and and it won't weigh on us as much at times because we're gonna learn tools to deal with it but I don't think that there's a day when you just like wipe the slate clean the things that are ours we're gonna have to continue to find ways to detach from our unhealthy behaviors and as much as we can but sometimes they're gonna come back and be in our life and that's okay and that's human so I, I love that you're being honest about that because that's what's true. If there's one thing I always will be, it's honest. Yeah. <laughs> Both with others and myself. And I am very vulnerable and I wear my heart on my sleeve. And a lot of it is because it's very cathartic for me. I'm not one to bottle my emotions. You'll know exactly how I feel 24-7. But I do see that the words that I say sometimes to my small little audience are powerful and they resonate And I get so many private messages just being like, whoa, this really spoke to me. Thank you for saying it out loud. And it's great to know that I'm not alone. And I think I more people, at least who are in the public eye or doing something creative that, you know, they want to get a point across, they need to do that more often 
because people don't realize their words and the stuff they have to say, they definitely speak to people a lot more than they think. Uh, I, that's just been the kind of the beauty of this situation is connecting with people from all walks of life who I don't talk to in my day to day. And, you know, we still share this commonality of having these hopes and dreams that were seemingly crushed by something out of our control. And, and I love that. I love that connection with people right now. So what tactics are you taking right now to anchor yourself in the present moment? Um, it's called Patron Tequila. I don't know if you've mm. heard of it. <laughs> no, never heard of it. Is it a new brand? Uh, yeah, it's a new one. I mean, honestly, I want to say alcohol really does put me in the present because it makes me happy. Um, right. But I would say it's just about, and this leads so well into your, it lends itself so well into your podcast. I would say it's coming up with just creative alternatives. It's like, Joey, you went into this book thinking, you know, things were going to be done a certain way, especially with my publicity background. You know, there's just a okay. checklist of things you do to promote a project. And that's not going to happen. But you are still creative. So what can you do that isn't, you know, going on a book tour, going on television to promote this book in a new and interesting way? So that has actually been helping me in the interim, you know, coming up with, you know, a po the podcast that I'm working on. I, I'm soon to announce wink wink um a partnership with a very very prominent youtube channel that's going to tap into an audience that i would have never even thought of before this so it things are working things are in motion and while it may not look exactly like i wanted it to it's it's still a good distraction from um what i thought was supposed to be so right and yeah. you also got to come home during this time. You know, you're really close to your mom, right? Yeah, yeah. Both my parents. I mean, my mom, I'm such a mommy's boy. But um, <laughs> yeah, coming home has had its challenges, though, because just from an even like technological standpoint, I'm over the dropped internet. <laughs> I'm over, <laughs> and also I'm taping, you know, cooking stuff. And their home is very Mediterranean. It's not cute. I mean, it's cute in their way. It's just not. It's, it's not, not like clean looking. It's not super not like, modern. That's yeah. what I mean by that. Not that yeah. it's not clean. I'm sure your mom yeah. keeps a beautiful well, home. It's not always <laughs> sanitary either. You know, my dad sneaks a mess in the kitchen. So like, what are these like chicken skins doing on the counter? <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Something we all ask. Okay. <laughs> I'm curious because for me, it's been interesting. Being home has really enhanced my creativity in a lot of ways. Like I've been picking up on things I used to do as a teenager. Like I haven't written poetry since high school and all of a sudden poems are like flowing out of me like water. Wow. Have you found that being home has kind of like helped you get back to your creativity in any way? I would say it's almost the opposite because really? yeah. So when I go home, it's really a respite from the craziness of my everyday life, you know, living in New York city, always being on the go, always traveling. And when I come home to Florida, it's the one opportunity for me to turn off my brain, typically in the past. And because that's just because I'm sitting around, you know, laying out, tanning, I have no agenda, I'm, I'm cooking whatever I want, I'm eating whatever I want, I'm just peeking with my parents, talking about, you know, drama and gossip. It's not like a, I, I have no responsibility. And right. I think I thrive better as a creative when I have deadlines and I'm under a certain level of stress because it forces my mind to race. I've kind of, when I got home, I took the most gigantic sigh of relief that, mm. and the first night that I was home was the first night and I would say three months that I slept through the entire night without waking up. Yeah, And that's, big for me. I, I never felt more well rested. I think the creativity will come. I did write a lot of my book last year at home. And I think the environment was really nice because it's just beautiful here to begin with. But right. I, because I was free of the distractions, it did kind of open up another channel of my brain that allowed thoughts to just freely flow. But I'm still kind of in this, oh, I need to breathe mode. And then I think, give me a couple more weeks and I'll get back in the swing of things. Yeah. It sounds like that's the creative part though. In, in New York, you were feeling all the anxiety of everything going on 
to the hilt. And then when you got to come home, I mean, it's like, I always say coming home is like reentering the womb. It's like, finally you're safe, you know? Yeah. And I think that that rest part, especially for somebody who works as hard as you do, is really important and undervalued. Like I always used to say like sleep. Yeah. Sleep is for the week. That was my college slogan. Um, (laughs) But you know, it's really important to allow yourself to rest because you can't create from a broken foundation. And so, yeah, it's, it's great that you're allowing yourself that. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to allow yourself to do that and recognize that you need to do that. I, and I, my anxiety is already putting me in New York a couple months from now where I know I'm not going to be sleeping well again. And it's like, I don't want that because I'm like, how much is this aging me? And how much is this going to impact just my creative process going forward? I feel like sometimes when I take too long of a break, I get nervous and I'm not going to be the same person when I come out of it. And that's already causing anxiety. And I'm curious to just see what happens when the book actually launches in August and I've had this downtime and how it'll play a role in the hustle. (laughs) I think you'll get right back to it. Like I, I released a song, I think month two of quarantine. And for those two, three weeks around there, I was hustle, hustle, hustle. And I mean, I've been hustling anyway, but your, your body, it's like muscle memory. You'll get right back to it. Really. True. Very true cool. I love that you bring up the fact that there's some opportunities you've had that you might not have had otherwise because of the quarantine and because things are a little different right now. Yeah. Was that something that came to you on its own or is it something you sought out? Like, how are you thinking of those different opportunities? A little bit of both. I have my boss, uh, the VP who oversees our brands on CBS Interactive, Mary Gail Pesamenti. She's been an amazing mentor for me because she knows I will have the fire under my ass no matter what situation because it's just in my nature. And my parents always say that too. It's like anything can happen, but you'll make it work. You know, I'm not one to like, I, even though I wallow around in self-pity and anxiety, I ultimately will get the job done. But she's right. done a really great job of helping me kind of think outside of the box and connecting me to the people that I need to be connected to. And people have been very receptive during this time. I think because they, you know, it's it's new and different for everyone. So they're welcome to these out-of-the-box ideas or things that are a little abnormal from what they typically do. Horrible what it's been doing for everyone. At the same token, I've been able to kind of take advantage of the fact that people are looking at things differently and they're willing to take risks and try new things. So uh, it's been a little bit of both. It's been a nice creative collaboration. She, you know, is a higher up in the company. She can connect me to the right people. But I can come to her with ideas, you know, that have been brewing for weeks. And it's just, I hate the word. I want to say it's an amazing synergy. <laughs> but it truly is. It's, it's, been, it's been a lot easier than I thought it would. So Yeah. Okay, you do a million things. I love that about you. First of all, how do you stay present on one task at a time? And how do you find a way to, like, meld them all into the same world? Yeah, I am hyper organized. And I've been this way since I was little. Again, it goes back to the cards. <laughs> I was lining them up by color because I love to be organized. You know, I was like, oh, the blue cards go here, the red cards go here. I, it's just, I'm so visual. I do it. I still have a handwritten planner. I need to wow. write everything down. Yeah, when I write something down, I feel like it becomes permanently etched in my brain. Um, I just, I'm so regimented and scheduled, which is another reason why this pandemic kind of threw me off mentally, because I'm so used to doing specific things every day at the same time, like down to the, to the hour. And when I feel like my life is a little bit chaotic, I rely on things like going to the gym, uh, going to restaurants to distract me or kind of, you know, make, lift my mood up a bit. And I didn't even have, you know, those things available for me. So it's definitely taken a detour, but I'm still hyper, hyper organized. And I'm not saying that it requires organization to be successful in whatever you want to pursue. But when I have 7,000 things going on, because on top of my day job, I'm obviously writing the book. And then on top of the book, 
I was doing a lot of prep trips and traveling. Yeah. So what are your tips for somebody who's not naturally organized? Like how can we start this endeavor? I think it's important to concentrate on little things first. Identify specific things in your life that you wish were more organized and just start there. It could be something as simple as my sock drawer and my dresser drives me insane because I can't find the other sock every day and it's a minor inconvenience. Start there and work your way up. You also have to want to be an organized person. I know some people who thrive off of chaos and that's totally yeah. fine for them. Unless it's obviously detrimental to the people around you and you're working with, you don't want that to happen. But I know people who are just messy and the best ideas, the best stuff comes out of it. I would say if you are willing or wanting to be more organized, definitely just start small, start something you could tackle and maintain that before adding on another layer. So you organize a sock drawer. Okay. Make sure you maintain that organized sock drawer for at least a week. And then let's tackle the closet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or then, you know, if the closet stays that way for a month, okay, now's the time that I can get a handwritten planner and I'll commit to writing out my day every morning, you know, as I have my cup of coffee. So I think it's really about just developing habits. But to develop these habits, you have to do things for a while. How have you created routine for yourself in the midst of this place where, like, it's lawlessness, like there's nothing to grab onto? How have you created your own routines? I make the most basic things routine down to... I have lemons in my fridge that I know are going bad. So I'll write down in my planner, use lemons. Mm -hmm. I have projects that I need to do that I've been putting off for forever, like grouting my shower. And I'll put that down. But for the most basic tasks, like I'm not even kidding, something as simple as watering the succulents in my apartment. (laughs) I will write Wait, let's talk in. about that. How do, when do you water them? Cause I feel like I'm murdering mine and I feel bad. Once a week is my, our mine flourish under once a week. Uh, and there's, uh, yeah, they've got, uh, not, I would say it's not it's direct sunlight for part of the day. They face north, but they're in my windowsill. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just about doing like little, I would say writing, even, even if you have to write down, brush your teeth, <laughs> put on deodorant. Yeah. For me, that actually, if I could check something off, if I can highlight something, that's what keeps me sane. In this well, you of- know what? There's science to that. I had a, a lady on a couple weeks ago, and she works with people, like she uses science, basically neuroscience, to help people really enhance their creativity. And she said it's proven that when you create lists and cross things off, it increases endorphins in your brain and dopamine, which allows you to become more productive. One energizes you. Hundred percent. I mean, I don't need a Zoloft. I don't need. I need to just cross something off of a list. <laughs> All he needs is a to-do list, honey buns. I love it. I, yes. I mean, gosh, I I get such a high from it. It's amazing. <laughs> You do so many different things beyond even like just your main things. Like I read it in your bio, you write poetry. I know you do drag, you do stand up. (laughs) As a driven person, this is something I struggle with. So I'm curious, how do you allow yourself to do it just for the sake of doing it rather than being like, now I have to be a drag star, you know, like anything you can do that you allow yourself to do without trying to make it into a business? No, (laughs) that's the the struggle. So I've kind of had to quell the interest in some areas. You know, like I have an entire stand-up routine written out. I perform some of the jokes, you know, with friends. And I'm like, I could really workshop this and practice it for a month and some sort of amateur hour. But have I done it yet? No, because in my mind, it's like I have to be all in. And it has to turn into something that's going to be career-defining, life-changing. The drag thing is a little bit more for fun. You know, I do it for, uh, we do an end of season party with my volleyball league where a bunch of people do drag and it stems from that. But that I also kind of told myself, okay, you're never going to take the time to develop the makeup skills to become a drag star. You're so good at it. But being Fuck a off. driven person. Yeah, I thought you were Lady Gaga in one of your pictures. I'm serious. Yeah, everyone, everyone says that. Rain on me. Um, but I... I, the driven personality, I'm like, if I really wanted to be a drag superstar, I totally could. I totally could do it. 
but I, this is where I feel like I, my organization comes in. I'm like, Joey, you don't have the time to check something like this off. Like you don't have the the resources yet to make it perfect and amazing. So it can kind of just sit on the back burner and you can just convince yourself that if you had the time, you'd be amazing. <laughs> so some of these are kind of like pipe dreams. It's like, if I really applied myself, I could do it. And I do feel like to dabble in it as a hobby, but I won't allow myself to take it to the next step yet unless I know I'm doing it to the 100% best of my abilities and I can make it be a career life defined. <laughs> so the way you talk yourself out of trying to pursue literally 20 things at once <laughs> is by saying like, listen, okay, I see my planner. I've written everything out. I don't mm-hmm. have a space to put this into. So therefore I will dabble in it. But if I wanted to be... I could be a drag star. Absolutely. And there's an underlying fear of failure. I feel like I always have to try to be the best that I can be in everything. And I still struggle with that because I don't have, you know, I'm right. I wrote a cookbook. I don't have a culinary background other than writing about food. I I did not go to school to learn how to be a chef. So I struggle with that too. I'm like, well, what am I doing writing a cookbook and, you know, giving cooking tips when I, you know, still chop garlic, like I'm wearing acrylic nails. And, uh, but I have to tell myself, be good then at these very specific things that are going to set you apart. So I'm good at storytelling and I'm good at, you know, telling people how to cook in a way that is dumbed down and simple. So that's going to be the area that I focus on as opposed to, you know, wanting to be the next Ina Garden. It's about setting realistic goals for me and being the next drag superstar, being the next big fan of Comet comic it's just not realistic it's something I enjoy and I could see myself being very good at if I had the time the energy uh to do so but it's not realistic right so you touched on imposter syndrome how do you work toward getting out of that because so many people struggle with it I don't know I think for me what inspires me is when I know I'm really good at something that I I know not a lot of other people are good at and recognizing that as opposed to trying to be someone else or this vision of what I think I'm supposed to be. It's been always about honing in on like the unique qualities that I have and doing things that haven't been thought of before. For example, basic bitchin, when I typed that into Google, the very first time I came up with the idea, I was shocked that nobody had trademarked it done something with it yet i'm like how has nobody thought to do a basic bitch cookbook and immediately i you know we trademarked we bought the domains um so i i never want to try to pretend to be something i'm not i'd rather flourish in be a part of this really really unique concept or idea of someone that i already am or i hope to become so basically your tactic to, to overcome imposter syndrome is being self-aware, looking at what you are doing really well, and really capitalizing on that. Yes. And not feeling bad if you're not as good as, or, and I, you know, I, but I do believe there has to be a level of faking it till you make it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super important no matter what you, no matter what you do. I am not an expert in certain things, but I can come off as one. And that has helped me, you know, in, in different situations. But the How root, did you do that? How did you fake it till you made it? The bullshitting, girl. The bullshitting <laughs> from PR. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's like sometimes, I would say actually most of the time, it's who you know and not what you know. And sometimes you just have to come across as being more knowledgeable in a field or in your skills and talents to convince who you know that you're worthy of an opportunity. It's hard, it's easier to tell someone sometimes that you know X, Y, and Z and prove it once you have the opportunity than to show someone, um, you know, because, because if you just don't have it, you don't have it. So I'd rather fake it, get the opportunity, and then bust my ass to prove that I was deserving of it than to start without these skills and get an opportunity and, and try to convince someone to give me an opportunity them ask for my skills and show that I really don't have them. Right. A little bit manipulative, but whatever. Corporate America, you got to do to survive. Well, as long as you bring the goods, it doesn't matter. You hit the nail on the head. 
Yeah. I always bring this up, but I, I was hired at SiriusXM without knowing how to edit audio. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll figure it out. Yeah. No, I didn't say I'll figure it out. I said, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll have the episode done by Friday. And I figured it out by Friday. So that's all that mattered. You know? I mean, that's amazing. And it, you're, you, <laughs> hit it, you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, as long as you provide a result that is successful for whatever project you're working on, I'm all about failure too. But I'm talking mm-hmm. about just in terms of creating opportunities that you really want. You may not necessarily be the most skilled, have the most expertise. Everyone says, you know, it's always about preparation, preparation, preparation. Absolutely. I 100% agree. But I also think it's about taking yourself a little out of your comfort zone and forcing yourself into a situation that you may not be the most knowledgeable and you may not be the most experienced, but it's something you really want and you're passionate about and learning along the way. And I think that's where I found, especially with this cookbook, you know, it was like, who am I to say I can be an authority and write a cookbook? You know, what, like, who who do I think I am? But ultimately, I know that it's a, it's something I want to do. It's some it's skills that I'm going to develop and learn along the way, and I'm going to challenge myself to prove that I can create this hyper-targeted cookbook to a specific audience that is going to resonate, and it works. So I just I thrive off of the challenge, even if that does require faking it till you make it for a little bit, because you're just going to learn so many life lessons and skills along the way. Definitely. You mentioned failure. I'm curious, is there a failure in your past that you learned something from? And if so, what was it? Girl, do you have all day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh, I failed at so many things that I hate to fail. Like my, uh, it's so I'm hardwired to not want to fail. And I was always the type of kid where if I tried something new and I wasn't good at it, I would just quit immediately. It was not, I could not be bothered. It was like, nope, um, I'm donezo. If I'm not the best at it, I'm, I'm not doing it. I would say failing multiple things. I think a very life-defining failure for me was I am just realized I'm an awful standardized test taker. And that was going to limit my options as to where I could go to college. Because no matter how many times I took that freaking SAT, I couldn't crack even a six. Oh God, I'm, this is the first time I'm revealing this in, in public. Uh, I could not crack a 600 on my verbal. So put that in perspective. I'm now an editor and I went to Northwestern, but I couldn't crack 600 on my verbal to save my life. I just, I can't, I get too stressed out in a standardized test environment. So I failed at that. I also failed getting into Northwestern my freshman year. It was my dream school. I went to SMU knowing that I didn't want to be there. Northwestern was my dream school. I got rejected. And rejection is another thing. That's a whole other podcast we do on rejection. <laughs> we, let's do it. Yeah. When, you know, the thing, the thing of it is I did a whole episode about that. I cried on air. I read some of the rejections I got from my first single when they yeah. rejected it. Um, like when blogs would say, no, not for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing I've realized about it is – yeah, there's certain levels of skill you have to have, but a lot of it comes down to taste. And like, we don't blame foods we don't like as being inherently bad foods just because we don't like them. We just yes. don't like them. Yet for ourselves, we can't give ourselves that same grace. Very true. And I kind of had to say, you know, when we even came to the college admissions thing, that was like a first huge failure thing for me. I was like, listen, they have just a checkbook or a checklist of what they need in the candidate and I didn't you know tick off all, I didn't check off all the the boxes and that's fine but you know what I did how I learned from failure is I like to prove other people wrong so I went to SMU my freshman year I got a 4.0 GPA and I applied to Northwestern as a transfer and I graduated with almost 4.0 so I'm like screw y'all you should have you know accepted me since day one but you didn't. So I'm going to prove to you, not only am I going to meet your expectations, I'm going to exceed them and make you look like shit. <laughs> so how do you think having that underdog mentality in life has served you? It served me well, because I was always the kid who was picked on, bullied, told he was worthless. And rather than using that negativity as something that would make me insecure and less confident, 
I would channel it towards what I was good at and try to be the best at what I was good at. And yeah, of course it was hard and I had really rough days, weeks, months of being tormented and feeling very insecure, but I was always able to flip the script and say, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're calling, you're preying upon a weakness of mine of some sort, but I'm going to hone in on the positives and I'm going to just make them 10 times better than any sort of positive you have, <laughs> you know, by being this asshole bully who just likes to prey upon people's weaknesses. So, and it's true because you look at the people who bully me and they're all miserable now and they, you could just tell they're not happy with their lives. And it's like, well, thank you for the motivation. And now how the tables have turned. Right. I mean, people are typically mean to other people because they feel badly about themselves. You know, you can't give away what you don't have. That's one of my favorite quotes. So when anyone is mean to you, it's really a reflection of them. You're triggering some kind of inadequacy they feel that they have. And so they're trying to put it back on you before you can give it to them. Totally. And that was all the motivation I needed. I did feel like I had something to prove to the people around me. But again, it is just an innate quality that I always had something to prove to myself because I know my potential. But they're bullying, tormenting, telling me I'm, I'm bad at X, Y, and Z was definitely fuel for the fire. And I saw that as a challenge. Well, what I find interesting about your story is you said when you were younger and you weren't good at something, you'd quit. But yet then you have this amazing story of wanting to get into Northwestern, really having like a singular focus for that and coming back at it and beating all of the odds that Northwestern put on you in the beginning when they rejected you. So how did you go from being the kid who was like, I'm not good at it, so I'm going to quit, to like, you say I'm not good at that? Well, I'm going to prove you wrong. What do you think shifted for you mentally? I think it was the heightened sense of self-awareness. The things I really quit in the beginning, I knew down the road, no matter how often I would practice or work on it, it just was not going to happen. I could get better at it. But I wasn't going to be amazing at it. With something like Northwestern, I saw it as like, nope, no way. This is an error on your guys' end. I know you have your checklist of what is required for a candidate or a student at your school, but there is that's messed up because there should be other checks, other boxes to check. And I offered these qualities. I thought that they were just wrong. And I, again, it's, it's, it's a heightened sense of self-awareness. As I've gotten older, more mature, had more life experiences, I'm obviously more privy to what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And I think when I now quit something and I'm just like, I'm not doing it, it's because I now perceive it as a waste of time. And I'm like, life is short. I now understand that. And I know exactly what I'm good at. And I'm only going to do things that play into that. So Northwestern was a big shift for me because it was like, you're telling me I'm not good for this school. I'm telling you, I know that I am. I went to your summer program. You guys have all the programs. You're offering, you know, different studies that I'm really interested in. But if it was something like I went out for the football team and I got sacked and broke three bones, instead of me being like, oh, I should try again next year. It's like, no, 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 no. I have the self-awareness now to realize football is never going to be a thing for me. (laughs) Right. So you you learned who you were and then you fought for the things that were truly a piece of who you are. Exactly. And it, yeah. And it makes it easier now to dismiss things that I'm bad at. Granted, it is to a fault because I'm sure there are things that I could tackle that would be beneficial to my life and help me that uh, I just don't have the patience for because I'm very impatient. And that's where I feel like I struggle. And I think that's where I struggle in the workplace too, where if, a colleague presents something to me that I think is just a waste of my time. I can be very dismissive. That's called negativity bias. And there's a simple way you can overcome it. It's a three-step process. It, we're all hardwired to do that, actually. But there, it's a, an easy way to overcome it. It's called the GPS system. It can really help increase productivity and creativity in the workplace. It's pretty powerful. But one of the things on this show that we talk about pretty much every week is fear and taking fear out of the driver's seat because I think that keeps a lot of people from unleashing their inner creative and living their most creative life. Mm -hmm. We've talked a bit about it, but I want to know what's your relationship with fear and how are you working toward taking it out of the driver's seat of your life? You know, fear is something that defined my life early on when I was too scared to take risks. And I do feel like we're in an unfortunate situation 
economically where taking risks is almost frowned upon because you're so scared of the financial repercussions. But I take fear out of my life by, again, honing in on those things that make me uniquely Joey and figuring out how I can expand upon them, turn them into passions, turn them into successes and little wins. It's going to start small, but it shouldn't feel like work or something that is going to be a detriment to your life. And I think that helps to alleviate the fear. Don't bite off more that you, than you can chew right away. Let, get yourself just a little bit uncomfortable. Explore things that you're passionate about. Explore your talent. And then slowly build upon them so you can turn it into an empire. I think a lot of uh, people are fearful of taking chances or risk-taking because they only see the long-term goal and how much it's going to take to get to that point. And it is going to be a lot of hard work. But keep things in a perspective and start small. And it's not going to feel like work. It's going to feel like a motivating passion that you're then, once you're, you're, you're knee deep in it and you don't even realize it, you're going to so easily and seamlessly be able to turn into a career trajectory or a very significant life-defining hobby that could make you money or not. Uh, it's just something that is going to be a significant part of your life. So start small is how you get rid of fear. I love it. Same way you organize. See, it's you all know? connected. <laughs> My brain goes into 7,000 different tangents, but again, it is all connected, I guess. It is all connected. You are obviously an incredible storyteller. I just always like to ask this for people who are storytellers like yourself. What do you think makes powerful storytelling? Embellishing and lying. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I was going to say my, my tenor voice. No. <laughs> That's right, honey. Listen, listen up. It's right here for your ears to feast on. Yeah. Listen to the cats dying when I try to sing. Um, but I would say, I think with stories, it's all just about the little details. There's so many small details that are left out of amazing stories. And those small visual details will really put another person in your brain and have them experience that moment and that story. And I just think, you know, I would encourage people when they are storytelling. And this is why I love my book so much. Every single intro to a recipe, every single head note is somehow relate to a personal experience of mine. Because food has the ability to transcend so much more than just taste. It's culture, it's life experience, it's, you know, it's memory. And I always want to connect food to something that was impactful or important in my life. And I've done that through the book. So, and it's only done through telling those nitty gritty details. And I think that's the key to, to powerful storytelling is really rely on your creativity and rely on all of your senses. You know, what, what did things smell, taste? What did you see here? Um, talk about physicalities of other people. I don't know. That's just, you got to make, tips. yeah, you just kind of got to uh, make it more relatable in ways that are universal. And we that's all, right. or most of us, can experience these senses, these, these common senses. And uh, yeah, I just say specificity is key. Wow. So specific descriptions to make people feel what you're feeling. Yes. And that's why I feel like even you mentioned you're doing so much poetry right now. It's because you are experiencing so many things that are new, but also universal but it's hard for you to convey it in a way that you typically would. So your poetry is doing probably an amazing job of allowing you to storytell through imagery, through metaphor, through words that you wouldn't use in your everyday vernacular. And that's what's going to make your story that much more powerful. So I love that you're doing that. Oh, thanks, Joey. I'll share a few with you. See what you think. Um, <laughs> well, you have to. I, I don't think so. No, Whatever no, no. I mean, most, I like forced my parents to listen to it. I got back from a walk the other day. I'm like, I wrote a poem. Do you want to hear it? And then I didn't wait for them to reply and I went into it. So I'm definitely looking for an audience. It'd be great. I want to talk a little bit about basic bitching because I know it's coming out this summer and we got to tell the people what they're about to get into. 
all the goodness. I work for Chow Hound. It's a food and lifestyle travel brand among the CBS Interactive portfolio. And I spent a lot of my career writing about food. And I, as a result, I was sent a lot of cookbooks because we cover them within the job, within my day to day. And I realized there really wasn't a place for a simple cookbook, something that was done in jest. I always say a lot of cookbooks are more aspirational instead of inspirational. And mm. I wanted this to be inspirational. I wanted this to be for the, the amateur cook who maybe is heating up ramen every night or is graduating from college and wants to learn how to make, you know, a cauliflower crusted pizza. Not something that's intimidating, but something that's broken down in a really easy and also funny and entertaining way. Because I think so many chefs, while they're amazing, take themselves so seriously. And it's like, listen, at the end of the day, we're just eating. And I do think food is powerful and food makes so many statements about everything from culture to socioeconomic status to um, just, just literally everything. It has the ability to transcend so many important things in life. Basic people, we're just eating for sustenance and we want those foods that make us feel good, the foods that make us feel comfortable. And it was my mission to just, you know, tap into the funny basic bitch culture of, you know, acai bowls and avocado toast and <laughs> mimosas and say, you know what? It's okay to celebrate these things and enjoy these things. We enjoy them and they become popular because they are good and don't you and make like let's just let's almost self-deprecate and make fun of this basic bitch label and but also enjoy everything associated with it in the process and not feel too bad about it so i can't wait um i do want to learn how to make all of those things so i will definitely be buying it on august 4th count me in i'm ready (laughs) yay so i want to go back to our little joey with his box cars that's what they were right (laughs) the matchbox cars yeah (laughs) okay so if you and that joey were standing in the same room what do you think your child self would say to you and why he would say to lighten up, loosen up a bit, because I did take myself so seriously growing up. It always worked to my advantage, but I really sacrificed a lot of fun social opportunities, even going to parties and going to college. Like I wasn't out in college because I thought it would be detrimental to my career. I think young Joey would tell me, lighten up, because life while we are driven by our careers and money and success, it really, success can be defined also by the relationships that you have and these amazing life experiences that you're not going to get again once you reach certain age you know, brackets. So little Joey would tell older Joey, lighten the F up and just enjoy life. And what would you say to him and why? Oh, gosh. Lighten when you when you growing up, lighten up <laughs> because it's so much better when you know you, you don't put so much pressure on yourself. Uh, but no, I would also say to worrying about what other people think of you and letting that impact you. It's I mean I would say it's great that you're using the negative to create a positive, and it's great that you've developed such a heightened sense of self self awareness at such a young age. But ultimately you need to just tune out the haters because people are going to try to bring you down based on their own insecurities. And you can use that to light the fire that you have inside of you, but focus less on what other people think about you and focus more on the people who are going to help bring out all of these amazing qualities that you know you have inside of you. Beautiful, Joey. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you. Oh my gosh. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It's, I, I hope this is helpful for people. And I, I love what you're doing because creativity is the key to life. <laughs> yes, it is. Honestly, I do believe that. I believe repressed creativity causes a lot of the world's suffering. And so I started this show to help people not have to suffer with the life that they want to live pushed down inside of them. We all have the birthright to own our creativity and unleash it. So thank you wow. for helping people do that today. This is why I'm the male you. Yes, that's right. (laughs) I love it.
Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Joey Scladani. You can check out his website, joeyscladani.com, and follow him at Joey Scladani. Scladani is spelled S-K-L-A-D-A-N-Y. His book, Basic Bitchin', is available on Amazon or wherever good books are found. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. Also, check out her brand new song that I helped write. It's called Loose Ends, and it is amazing. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. If you do that, if you post about it, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost it. This week, I will be doing a creative check-in episode on Friday, usually drops in the evenings. And also, please join me this Sunday, August 16th. I'm going to be doing a live jam session on my Instagram page at Lauren LaGrasso of Original Music. I go live at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Let's sing and dance together. My wish for you this week is that you take pride in your work and you enjoy your work, but you realize that your worth is not tied up in it. I love you and I believe in you. Talk soon. <laughs>